Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Four, three, two, one. Lift off. We have a lift off. Now with your hosts, Boo and Sean. Booyah, here we are with the few. Getting pumped now. Feeling like got to bring some extra energy to the table. I've done no exercise this morning. I'm having a, a massive drama trying to fit all of that into an incredibly... A hectic life, so I'm pumped today, Shawnee. How are you feeling this beautiful, fine winter's day or slash autumn? Absolutely great, mate. I'm really uh, looking forward to today's conversation, so it's uh, really looking forward to it. Yeah, the minute I start researching people like our guests today, I have this huge impact straight away, which is like, yeah, I need all that. I'm not doing that. That's a great idea. That's awesome. How can I do more? So I'm, I'm really pumped today, and I don't know whether this guest knows of the Australian's ability to murder vowels when it comes to names. And this awesome dude has got so many vowels in his name that we're going to create a gap between North American style language and Australian. This is someone who's super important, particularly for those that have kids, your parents, you've got a massively hectic lifestyle, you're a dude, you're getting older, your metabolism's letting you down. Super stoked today to have Di Manuel on the show today. Di, g'day mate, how are you? Welcome to the few. Well, first of all, I'm so stoked to be here. That's uh, another Canadian term, stoked, in case you're wondering, <laughs> you know, way across the pond. But I got to say, you know, just your intro, guys, I, how's that not just get you fired up? I, I, I've listened to that a couple of times now, and I'm just like, man, I love the intro. It just sets the tone, right? Mental priming, mental priming. I was going to say, and you just prime the show in, in a wonderful way. So yeah, I'm honored to be here. I'm just really looking forward to this. This is going to be great. Thanks, man. Thanks for taking time. And welcome, Di. You know, it's great to have you here. And, you know, same thing as Boo said, you know, it's the same when I do research on any of our guests on the podcast here. It's like, wow, that's a really different or unique perspective. I haven't looked at things that way. And one of the things that really stood out to me was the way that you approach life. You you have, you know, a a bit of a model there that you run and that you've developed over time. And I'd love to, uh, you know, maybe get a little bit of a story about where you've come from and how you ended up creating this model to live your life by as, as a man, as a husband, as a father, you know, in all the roles that you play in your life. First of all, thank you. I mean, it's a great question. It's a big question, right? Because when I think about it, it's like, yeah, it's taken me 44 years to get to this point, you know? Yeah, Sean loves the big <laughs> questions, mate. He loves them. He just, he sits there, he unpacks them. He's like, how can I cram more into this? Boom. And there it goes. Yeah. And, and I'm like, okay, well, where do I start? You know, like, because 44 years, it, it's funny, but it's so cliche, but it's gone by in a blink, right? Like, I'm just amazed, you know, I'll be 45 this fall. And I'm like, what the hell happened? How did I get here? Because I'll tell you, there's, there's been times where I, I questioned I'd ever make it to this far, you know, and I think we've all probably had some of those stories and they might come up today. And, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, I was morbidly obese. I was a big kid and, you know, and I didn't get there by accident. And I think that's the thing about unhealth. You know, when we get into a state of unhealth where we're, it's not like you wake up one day and it's like, oh, I'm like 150 pounds heavier than I should be. You know, it's like, it's a, pardon the pun, but a slow grow, right? Like it, it took some time and, and it was literally from the age of nine to 14, just eating a lot of calories that were poor in nutrition, but high in content. And on top of that, you know, movies and video games, I didn't move my body. So it just compounded and my mindset, my physicality, it matched. It was literally non-existent. And I was very depressed and withdrawn. And, you know, those are the early formative years. Well, you start to see seeds of that person that we ultimately grow into as we start to mature and age and experience life. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird origin story from the standpoint, a lot of people that meet me or they creep me on social, if they're not familiar with the backstory, I'm someone that's been in the fitness space now for 26 years. And when I say that, I'm not a hobbyist. I, I mean, I make a full-time income and then some doing what I love, you know, in lots of different capacities. And yet I didn't come to fitness naturally. It wasn't something where I woke up and I was like, yay, let's go work out. You know, <laughs> and, and even still to today, I, I would say, <laughs> I was going to say even today, you know, it's not 
one of those things where I wake up and where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go and work out. You know, like there's those moments where I'm excited to move my body, but getting it started, it's not easy. And like I said, I'm 44 now. Things have changed a bit. That's a really interesting question. And during my formative years and as a kid, I was super athletic. I did a lot of sport. I never really enjoyed it, but it was a case of, ah, you got to win a race. That's the kind of school you're at. Everyone's doing it. And then as you leave, you just start to tail off. And and then as you get older, particularly now, I think you value health more as you get older. You appreciate it. You you understand that it is a bit harder to get going. And if you put good fuel in the body and you do good things, you're going to feel better. When did you have that realization though? When was that moment when you went, ah, I've got to transition here because that is really hard. Making the decisions easy, I guess, for like two days, but making the decision <laughs> to make it sustainable is hard. How do you do How did you do that? Boo, uh, I love you, man. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, yeah, it is hard. I mean, change is hard, period. Like, let's be honest. We, we all get into our groove, right? We get into that sort of just mode of operating. And, you know, for a lot of us, we, we wake up, we do what we do. We do a lot of cool stuff during the day, hopefully, things that fulfill us, make us feel a little bit happy or a little bit joyful that we're living these great lives. And then, you know, we do it all again the next day and, and we get into these patterns. And so patterns, especially the more pronounced they are and the deeper ingrained those paths are in our, you know, just way of operating our life, the harder it is to get out of them, right? And, and to make those shifts. And trust me, at age 14, it wasn't like I was like, hey, I want to get fit. I mean, it got to that, but it wasn't until I, I reached what I felt was my rock bottom, you know, and, and even when I think back on it, I was like, I actually felt like I was being pressed down by a rock on top of me, you know, like it was pretty hard. I mean, at 14, everything's hard already, right? Like you got hormones starting to manifest, you, you start taking interest in romantic relationships, potentially, you know, you, you start to think about gosh, what's going to happen when I'm done school, when I'm off on my own, when I get to exercise this independence? And for me, it was just like, I have no idea. I was scared. I was intimidated. And I was depressed, withdrawn. And give me some better context. You know, I, I'm going to date myself here. <laughs> you know, back then we did not have smartphones. Okay. So for those millennials that are listening to this, screw you. Uh, but you know what I'm talking about? I, I didn't have a, a, like smartphones, like cameras was a big deal. I mean, you pulled out a freaking brick and you took a photo, right? And then you had to get it processed. But to match the absurdity of just how little there is documenting of me in that state, because I avoided social settings. I avoided any cameras. I mean, even mirrors, I, I, you know, I'd go into the bathroom, I'd be having my shower and I knew I'd have to be toweling off afterwards. I stayed in the shower for a few extra minutes after every shower, turned on the hot water as hot as I could. So all that steam would get the mirror covered in condensation. So I didn't even have to look at myself when I got out of the mirror. I mean, th that was life. Man, that's hard. Was it just a, a gradual decline? Do, do you wake up in the morning and go, this is it or... Or is there one moment or is it like a transition into this new world, new life? Yeah. You know, I got to this point at 14 where I was, to be quite frank, entertaining the idea of, you know, life would probably just be a lot easier if I just didn't have to live it. And I mean, that's a scary thing. And I'm not trying to make light of this, especially with the month that it is now, Mental Health Awareness Month. Like, it's a big deal. I still struggle with issues. You know, mental health is always a challenge, but I've learned healthier ways to manage it. I've also learned to bounce back or deal with a little bit less friction so I can manage some of these moments where things become more compoundly difficult, you know, like things become more challenging. And it's usually because of myself, you know, decisions. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But, you know, at 14, I, I got to that point and I was more afraid of actually staying as I was than I was of the idea of making some changes. So just to, to frame that up again, you know, I just ultimately got to a point where I was more afraid of not changing than I was of changing. Yeah, Di, there's a concept that I talk about, which is the, the change threshold. It's when the pain of doing nothing becomes greater than the pain of doing something. Love it. And that's usually that tipping point where, which is by the sounds of it, what you're talking about here. And, and your story is, is really resonating a lot with me from when I was about 14 for a good five or six years. The same thing, I was probably if you put it in pounds, probably about 50 pounds heavier than I needed to be from 17 for like nearly 17 years. I had clinical depression. I got very close at one point to ending my life. You know, it's the thing that I don't hide because 
I know other people have been there or might feel that or go there. And the thing is I actually reached out and got support to help in that sense as well. So I think it's important not to necessarily gloss over that stuff, but to, not that we are, but to really acknowledge the fact that at times it can suck and, you know, you can, you can find it really hard to, to deal with it. Absolutely. And, and it is hard to deal with. And to be honest, at that point in my life, I, I didn't know how to ask for help. And I got to that place where I realized that I just wasn't going to accept who I was anymore. I think it's interesting here too, though, when you get to there and you get, you get to the conscious bit, which is you consciously want to end and just stop. You want to stop the brain. Yeah. But then it's like your brain almost says, look, I'm taking over. Okay. <laughs> I know that's what you yeah. think, but the animal is going to come out now and it's going to say, shush, shush. And, and you get your support network, you get all of, all of this help. But I, I feel like when you get there, something takes over your body and your mind and you will get this neurochemical release or something that creates this, this transition. And it seems that then you do something that's good for you, that releases more of that good stuff into your body. And then you end up on this wave and that kind of just seems to, you just stay on it and you, it's not a huge wave. It's just a nice wave that you can just ride your mouth into the beach when you're uh, you know, at the end of a session. Did it feel like that? Like when you, when you finally made that decision that it, you, you started to crave that little bit? It's interesting you bring that up because I think we all are looking for little rewards, you know, like we do. There, there's just the way habits are formed, period, right? We, we want to reinforce some of the things that we're doing with some sort of positive uplift, whether it be a positive result we're creating, or in my instance, it was making some physical changes, but being able to recognize and really appreciate the contrast of, wow, this thing that was super hard, even just weeks ago, isn't as hard right now. Now, I'm not saying it was easy because it wasn't, uh, that's progress. It was, it was, it was the, the idea of progress. And, and, you know, a lot of people have talked about this in the psychology space and those that are into habit change and habit formation and neuro change, you know, they talk about looking for the benefit from the actual changes itself, not necessarily the end result of change, you know? So as they say, enjoy the journey, not just the destination. And for me, yep. I, I had a destination in mind. I was like, I want a girlfriend, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> straight up, <laughs> straight up, straight up. You know, like that was, you know, people say, well, what's the biggest motivation for you? I was like, I just want a girl that wants me. You know, there's a lot to unpack there. And I've worked with psychologists. I've worked with counselors, you know, and they always like to go back to the origin stories. And when I drop that one, you know, there's, there's a lot of Freudian stuff starts coming out. <laughs> but but the, the long and short of it all was, you know, I made the decision that I was going to no longer accept being that way. And I had no idea how to make the changes, but I had seen, I'd been witnessing, you know, friends of mine, you know, and I, friends, I use that term loosely because I'd say there were more acquaintances because I didn't allow a lot of people into my life at that point. You know, I was very good at pushing people away, uh, doing things a, a lot of my own and avoiding social situations because I just, I didn't like who I was. So showing up and being around people, that was intimidating. And I always believed that everybody was judging me. Always, right? And, and so avoid it. Well, they are. I mean, that's the reality in life as well. I mean, there's a, as much as you tell your kids and yourself, you've got to ignore it. But the reality is, you know, we all get judged and it's our choice there, which is our real selves versus our perceived selves. And, and no doubt that, you know, in your case, that was a healthy motivator. You know, it's not a bad thing. What's the origins of your name, mate? You've definitely got a unique name. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Dai's a Welsh name for David. And uh, Manuel's a Portuguese last name. So, yeah, figure that one out. You know, as I and tell you live in Canada. I'm Canadian. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you come into Canada, you'll know exactly what I mean. It's, it's always these combinations, right? We're just a blend. <laughs> oh, yeah, a melting pot. So, in today's world, you, you've obviously got a broad mandate because you know your staff, you've had a journey, you've, you've obviously got a story to tell across the entire age and gender bracket, but really you're, you're niching into men and dads and, and health and well-being around that. Your journey was more like physical initially into the physical well-being and it's moved right into a holistic well-being space. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit it. Like, listen, at, at the early stages, when it came to change, all I was focused on was that exterior physical change. You know, I, I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be fit. I wanted to be ripped. You know, I remember I wanted a six pack. I wanted to be desired. And I believe that that was the only way to get it. 
I still want that. It's 46 years. Yeah. I think it's too late. Is it too late, Ty? <laughs> can I do it? Or is it too late? Yes, you can. You yeah. know, I know. There's a different conversation there. But wait, let's come back to that because I, I do have some ideas on that. But I think it's looking at how we perceive fitness, right? Like fitness to me was just about the physicality. Like that's what I always believed it was. And I hate saying this because I know some people think it's very polarizing, but I will contend that I feel the fitness industry is very immature still. I mean, it's, it's a new industry, right? Like really, if you think about it, 50 years ago, there wasn't really a fitness industry. I mean, it was the outliers. It was like these little dungy gyms, you know, <laughs> with a bunch of steel, like the old Weeder and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like you watch like some of their old stuff and that's what it was. It wasn't mainstream like it is now. And, and even then healthy living the way we refer to well-being and wellness and even the term mental health, you know, I mean, that wasn't something that was even around 15, 20 years ago. You know, you'd hear it occasionally, but no one really understood it as we do now. And so if I look back, my journey into fitness was all just physicality. I didn't do any inner work. And to be honest, I didn't think I needed it. I was very cocky, very ego driven. And, you know, I was just pursuing excellence as far as I could professionally. So I was chasing titles. I was chasing what people would perceive as being successful. And so then I got into retail sales. I opened up a chain of stores with a partner and, you know, but it was all in the fitness industry and it's broken, man. Like straight up, it's (laughs) freaking broken. Like it needs to change, right? I get some hate mail every once in a while from young personal trainers and they just don't have the experience, you know? No, I think it lets people down, right? It's like being a psychologist. You, you do a psychology degree, you pop out at the age of 23 with a master's and, and you start, you know, helping people theoretically you can do without yes. the life skills. And I think you see that in the personal training space. You come out with yeah. your first certificate in training and you're shopped around inside a big fitness first or a yeah, these big bulk gyms and, and they've been given a 46-year-old woman to to train up and it's like this person is not going to continue their training journey with you. And then you get a trainer who's in their forties and they've done it for 20 years. And it's, that is transformative. You know, I've had a few of these transformative to your life. When you come across somebody that connects your life, what you do, their life experience and the fitness journey. It's not get on this yeah. and smash yourself. We're getting your high intensity training. Go, go, go. Until you're like, you're literally going to kill yourself because of the training that's meant to make you feel better. Yeah. You nailed it on the head there because that's very much the way it is. And it's perpetuated that way. I mean, you look at media, you look at social media, especially. I mean, I I just I I don't follow anybody in the fitness space for that given reason, not to say that they're doing things wrong. It's just that I found that a lot of what was being projected didn't resonate with me, especially where I'm at in life now. I don't find inspiration from a guy pulling up a shirt and showing a six pack. I, I just it doesn't inspire me doesn't motivate me. I can acknowledge it and say, it takes a lot of work to do that. Good on you. I can acknowledge that. But it doesn't really relate to how I look at life anymore. You know, and, and this changed early in my 30s because I'll tell you, I had to learn to deal with some of those coping mechanisms. Just like I was when I was morbidly obese, I was able to suppress my emotions, avoid situations that created a lot of stress and would up my anxiety levels. So I started to exercise a lot thinking that that was the best way to manage it. And it helped. It did help. But it didn't help enough <laughs> because I learned on, you know, as soon as I got to 17, 18, started getting more attention, started getting opportunities to hang out with certain people. Some of the association that I had, well, you know what, to break down the walls, have a few beers, have a few more. And I found that if I drank and I had a few drinks in me, I could talk to anybody, <laughs> you know, I could live into who people were perceiving me as because they had this sort of image of me. So there was a perception And I felt like I started to live into that perception, but it was alcohol fueled. Does that make sense? And that went on for 15 years and it just got worse. You know, I started having kids, was growing my company and everybody had this perception of me. Oh, he's got it all together. Look at that life. Look at his family. Wow. Wow. And I was a mess. (laughs) Okay. I was a hot mess. And it came to a point, and this is the reason I had a TEDx talk about a month ago where I shared openly about this moment in my life where everything came crashing down. Easily the lowest point in my life, you know, and this is just over 11 years ago. And alcohol and narcotics were an everyday thing. And it was my coping mechanism as well as my way to escape. A lot of the stress, a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the overwhelm that I just felt with life. 
it's like enhanced high performance, isn't it? Not real oh. high performance. It's a you're just cashing chips that eventually you're going to break. You're pulling that high tension wire, and it's holding, it's holding, but eventually the bridge is going to come down, right? I, and I hate to say it like this because I don't know if it's true or not, but it felt like it had to, you know. And, and I'm not trying to imply that it has to come crashing down, but I think it is inevitable. It was just a matter of time, you know. And there was certain things like, man, I rode off a car, and I was able to somehow get out of that. I mean, I felt asleep at the wheel because I had way too much to drink that night. And I went across a ditch, like at a teasing intersection, woke up inches from a tree trunk, you know, and I'm still amazed. I'm like, but you would have thought that that would have been the wake up call. But no, it wasn't until another six months after that, that I finally made the decision to say, you know what? Maybe the way I'm doing things isn't the best way, <laughs> you know? And, and I also started realizing I wasn't being a very good role model especially to my kids. You know, I have two daughters now in their teens, they're 16 and 18. And at the time they were both under the age of six. And I know I was that first role model, that first superhero, to be honest, of what they believed was a strong person, a great human being, you know, in their eyes, I could do no wrong. I'll just ask one question then, Sean, I'm going to shut up. Sorry, mate. Yeah. One of the things I want to ask you about that journey is being successful and being successful with that attachment of that lifestyle, how scary was it to go, I'm going to remove that part of my life, but somehow I've still got to figure out how to be successful. I know I had a bit of a journey with that myself. Air Force heavy drinking culture, super social, hard charged. And then that translates into the way that you run your businesses and your network. For me, I actually had this moment, which is like, I'm not sure I know how to be me and do stuff without that. Did you feel like there was a similar journey for you with that? Yes. Well, it was clean cut from the standpoint when I made the commitment to my kids and my wife, especially myself, was I'm going to go one year without alcohol. Like it was like, here's my commitment. I know that this is not the healthiest way for me to manage all these negative emotions that I'm dealing with, all this negative self-talk and self-opinions. And I mean, I just, I didn't like me. I mean, that was the bottom line. I just, I didn't like me. And I was avoiding confronting myself, you know, and really taking an inventory of where my life was at because on paper it looked really good, <laughs> but in actuality it didn't feel very good. Is the fact that you didn't like yourself, Di, was that related to like the image you were projecting was different to who you actually were? There was a, a mismatching incongruence? Cognitive dissonance? Yeah, there was definitely incongruence. And I mean, I was very much perceived as a certain individual in the health and wellness space, especially in Canada. And meanwhile, those that really knew me and would see me out and doing those certain things, like it was a clear juxtaposition. Like it, it was very much opposites. And, you know, you can only live that way for so long and it eventually catches up with you. I, uh, I did some hypnotherapy work oh. after 17 years of having clinical depression. And the thing that came out was exactly that, that I was projecting an identity that was not me. And in two sessions, that identity was changed, was removed. That mask was removed. And I've never had, never gone back there again. Oh. I believed I was this image that other people had told me that I was. Mm. And once I released that, everything looked different. You know, every aspect of my life changed. It just looked completely different. And it was incredibly liberating to really then look at who I actually was and go, huh, I could actually like this person because I didn't like that person I was before. Ah, freaking love that, Sean. And I, I wish I found hypnotherapy 11 years ago because it probably would have saved me about well, a lot of money for one, but also <laughs> a lot of growing pains because it, it was subjecting myself to grow, you know, because I was still very immature. I was still very focused on the ego and focused on my physicality. And because of my lifestyle choices, my, my health was declining. You know, it was like my performance was okay, but the overall health was declining. And you know, I was diagnosed with a chronic autoimmune disease a few years after making these changes. And I'm glad I made those changes because knowing what I know now about the condition that I have. But what can I ask you, mate? What have you got? I have an autoimmune disorder. Oh, well, hey, we're in the same club. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's called autoimmune neutropenia. And uh, basically what it means is my bone marrow produces lots of white blood cells and, and other things that are really important for immune function, with the exception that these neutrophils that I create get killed off faster than I can create them. 
and neutrophils are basically that line of defense. So if you get a cut or a scrape and, and, and you know, there's something that goes there to neutralize any bacteria that might get in there or any viruses that might get in there. I don't have that line of defense. As my hematologist would joke, it's like, you know, life would be just a little bit better if you yeah. lived in a bubble. Like, <laughs> better for everyone if that happened, I think. Well, COVID, you know? there you go. Here's your gift. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the thing, right? With this year, it's been crazy. I am naturally introverted, but I work as an extrovert by a choice. And so it's very much an 80-20. So it's, you know, 20% extrovert, 80% introvert. Extroverted because you have to be. Otherwise, you won't, no one will hear your message, right? I, yes. You won't be able to share. Exactly. That's fascinating, Dyke. Sean, this is probably 80%, 90% of the few that we've had on have said that, that at the end of the day, they're, they're more comfortable with their own company. Oh, yeah. They'd rather not, but everyone realizes, but you got to, because you can't share. And, and I think that's why people like yourselves die are so good at explaining things because you want to spend the minimum amount of time having to reach out and connect. So how can I say it succinctly? Whereas an extrovert will just be like, ah, broadcast. I reckon, because Sean and I have, we've got a little bit of a subtext running here, die, which is, what is it that makes everyone tick? There must be some common themes between these few. And I think introversion is starting to emerge as one of the one of the common themes. And I think we all have a certain level of that. But I think it's definitely become more prominent in my life the last, I'd say, six, seven years, you know, and especially as I made a career change. And, you know, because allowing myself to start doing some of the other work, you know what I mean? I, I found a great psychologist that I worked with for a few months. And I also worked with a counselor for a little while. And so I, I started to recognize I needed support. I didn't have the resources, at least mentally speaking, and from an understanding standpoint of myself, like, I just, I didn't know how to navigate that. And, and to be honest, the people that I associated with, they didn't know either. <laughs> you know, they didn't. Even two weeks after I'd made it known, I was like, I'm going a year, no drinking. I'm just going to work on me and just, oh, I made it very well known, especially, you know, I had a lot of people that were working for me at the time and it was like, and I was the guy that would be like, oh, let's just go have a quick working lunch, you know? And I'm the one encouraging the consumption, right? Like I'm the one saying, well, let's just buy another round. Because if I bought another round, it meant I could have another drink. So that was how I would operate. So for everybody, it was like, yeah, Ty's saying this, but eh, we'll see if he's actually. I remember two weeks in getting a call. Oh yeah, UFC this Friday night. Let's meet at the pub. You know, and I'm like, hey, do you remember what I said last week? <laughs> you know, like it didn't register. Right. And, and eventually it got to a point where the phone just wasn't, I wasn't being invited because it was kind of awkward, you know, to be like, I'd show up and it was great. You know, early on in the night, we're all sort of at the same wavelength. At that point in time, I was drinking a lot of diet Pepsi, you know, no plug here, no affiliation. I don't endorse diet Pepsi. Don't drink it if you do. <laughs> uh, it's, it's basically because that was what I had to replace the alcohol with. I, I thought diet soda would be the best way to go and, and until it started creating some health issues for me because of the amount I was consuming. Eventually, I moved to, you know, to soda water <laughs> and lemon. But at that time, you know, I'm at the pub. We're drinking. Yeah, about two fights into the night, you know, the conversation is just not connecting. I'm not connecting. And to be honest, people aren't wanting to go to where I was feeling the need to go in the conversation. Yeah. I was trying to go deeper. I was trying to express more things because now I'm in this space. I'm doing that work. I was like, no one's on the same wavelength as me. And, and that's where I had to start saying, sheesh, maybe I just need to change my association yeah that's one of the biggest things that that we've found you know, in, in my own journey and you know with the clients that i work with over time is as you start to go down that journey you are going to leave some people behind and that's not that they're bad people or anything it's just that you start to change your frequency starts to change and you're resonating at a different frequency now you're yes. seeking a level of depth that people can't go to and i know that we touched on just before we started our recording the podcast the context around how important particularly for men is to be able to move towards a place of vulnerability. Mm. And you talked about it, you know, having a passion for that as I do. I'd love to hear a bit more about your take on that and, and part of that within your journey as well to move towards from the ego in the head to actually being more heart-centered and, and vulnerable. Well, thank you. I, I can tell like, you know, our stories are so similar. That's the neat thing about vulnerability. I love how Brene Brown sort of frames it. You know, it's, it's not meant for shock and awe. If I had my choice, I wouldn't share it. I'm just being honest, like, you know, it's not a comfortable conversation. It's something I'm proud of acknowledging, but it is part of me. It's part of my story. And what I noticed was as I started becoming more open about sharing that, not just with anybody, because I don't believe everybody deserves 
our vulnerability. But I know that as soon as I started sharing, other people started sharing back. Other people started saying, oh man, me too. You have no idea how long I've been dealing with that too. And all of a sudden I realized, holy crap, there's a lot more people that are dealing with this kind of stuff. I had no idea. You know, I just thought, oh, you got to be an alcoholic to go to a meeting. You know, you got to be this, you got to be that. I was so quick to try to fit everything into little nice boxes, you know, give everything a nice little label until I was the one all of a sudden questioning the labels that I had given myself. And, and I was like, holy, I've, I've got a warped way of looking at things, you know, like very one-sided. That I didn't like. I didn't like how it made me feel. And it, I started to question a lot of what I believed. And that put me into that space where I started looking at, well, what's really important to me? Truthfully, you know, not money in the bank, not status, not stuff. I started questioning a lot of the things that I believed I wanted. Let's look at money in the bank for a second, just before you move on, Di, because obviously in today's world, one of the themes that jams Instagram and social media channels are private jets and and uh, Lamborghinis and, and all the rest. And I, I was just doing our own socials this morning and there was some millionaire blah coming up on my feed about, you know, how he, Jeff Bezos and uh, Bill Gates can't even hold a relationship down with, and they're billionaires. And I thought, well, yeah, that's probably why, because they're billionaires. So they probably didn't have any room for anyone else apart from themselves. And you've been on that journey, right? Like, like let's be straight up. You were, you were on the out drinking, living the dream. You weren't just opening businesses to not put some coin in a bank, right? Like, I, I presume money was a, was a major motivator during that time? Absolutely. Tell us your journey about success monetarily versus success mind, body, soul. I was started off as a trainer. I wasn't very good at it because here I was that young 20-year-old that was often training people older than him. And I was of the mindset, hey, no pain. You ain't gonna gain, you know. Like, so you're you're the personal trainer you don't want. <laughs> oh, I was, I, but I believe that's what people needed, you know. So I'm just gonna give people what they need, not what they want. I'm gonna give them this. I'm gonna get them fit. I'm gonna, and I realized I was a really poor personal trainer, <laughs> you know, both poor as in knowledge set and understanding, but also poor because I just couldn't keep clients, you know. <laughs> and even times I joked about firing clients because I was like, you're not working hard. If you should, you know, but, and just being bombastic. And I'm like, this is just not who I am. And, and fortunately, I found myself navigating into equipment sales. And it was my first taste of commission pay structure, you know, a, a pay structure where there was no ceiling. And based on the amount of people I could help get healthier, I made more money, you know, more people I could help produce great health results, I was going to be rewarded. I was like, wow, this sounds like a good deal. I think I could get into this. And fortunately for me, I had a knack for sales. I picked it up really quick. It's interesting that journey, but I think in your 20s, my whole 20s were consuming wanting to be the best fighter pilot in the world in a massive high energy, high performing peer group where there was no quarter was given, right? And in some ways, I think there's some benefit in having that focus and harnessing all of that energy and you don't have enough brain capacity to be thinking esoterically. Mm. Maybe that's the journey. But I think what I'm really interested to have a chat with you about now is that changes at some point. And yeah. your 40s is a really interesting time, right? It's when you start saying, actually, I can't really take that risk because I don't have the time to reverse it. I can't make the mistakes I used to make, I, I have to stick with it. Or, oh my gosh, I need to throw everything out and start again. And there goes my family. Here comes the Corvette. What are you sort of learning and observing now around men as they start to get into that probably mid forties into the and fifties? What what are you sort of observing in terms of behaviors? And what are some of your advice and tips to to manage this kind of quite confrontational period of a man's life? Yeah, I, I like how. Wayne Dyer, you know, Wayne Dyer, uh, yeah, he's written a bunch of stuff, but he, he's, he has something called the shift, you know, and there's sort of that shift that us as humans, but especially men, I've seen this because I also remember watching my father and some of my uncles and some of the other male figures in my life when I was in my late teens and early 20s as they were sort of coming into that 40s and 50 range and just observing what they were going through. And now, you know, being myself and also going through that journey, it's like, oh man, I've seen this all before, <laughs> you know? And th the shift that we experience is one that often goes from, yes, all the stuff, all the things that we've prioritized, especially career, maybe building a family, you know, maybe trying to amass certain things, especially status. A lot of those ego things, those things that stroke the ego or 
develop our self-perception of our value, but then we start to shift or we don't. That's the interesting thing I noted, especially in some of the, the stuff that I've read and I've observed is some do shift and some don't. And if we don't, we often see this referred to as the midlife crisis. I remember my dad right around this time is when he told my mom he's going to be leaving her, ultimately divorced. And then he, he fell in love with someone 15 years younger than him. I don't want to play out any cliches because they're not. My stepmom was a beautiful lady and I love her to death and I still consider her as a mom. But my father ended up passing away about four years ago. And I think this is the thing that really shifted things for me and solidified some of the beliefs that I started forming about six, seven years ago on this subject is you're very much accurate in what you say. You know, when the clock on the wall starts counting down versus count up and we actually start to recognize that. That's when it's like, oh my gosh, why am I doing some of these things? I truly believe we all have that, those questions start to well up in us where we start questioning some of the things we're doing, especially as 40, 45, 50 starts coming in where we're thinking, you know, if I go by stats, I've got less than half my life left. You know, if you base it on the, the average male lives to be what, 79 years old in most developed countries, like, man, I'm past halfway. Do I want to be living my second half of life? anywhere like I would live my first half. Well, I don't know. You know, some of those, I had about 12 years there. I quite honestly don't remember a lot of, but I do remember doing some things only because Facebook tells me. <laughs> but other than that, you know, like uh, it's a big, big change. That must be why more old people use Facebook than young people just to jog uh, their memory. Oh, right? Hey man, I do all the time. I'm looking, <laughs> oh, this is where I was last year, five years ago. Oh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> you know, but this gift that we start to experience, I think either we accept or we don't. And what I've noticed, especially with my father passing, that was a big wake-up call for me. He suffered from pancreatic cancer. That's ultimately what, ultimately what he died from and some complications from that, obviously. But for about 10 years leading up to that moment when he finally passed, he was just riddled with health challenges. He got late-onset diabetes. You know, a lot of that was lifestyle-based. See, my dad was the kind of guy you'd see him and you'd just think, man, healthy dude. He died at 72, a young 72. Like most people would never think he was in his 70s. He just, he looked quite young. But he had certain lifestyle choices that he lived for a long time. And, and trying to undo that in a very quick turnaround doesn't necessarily happen. As I shared with you right at the beginning, you know, that state of unhealth doesn't just happen overnight. Usually there's been some signs. There's usually been a couple things we've experienced. There's some bells that have started going off in our head. But we're very good at sort of dismissing or ignoring until we can't. And watching my father go through that, he was very successful, like very, very successful. And I learned a lot just by watching him and how he lived his life. And uh, especially when it came to business, you know, he was just very aggressive and built his own practice and was just successful. And then he sold it. Mm. And then it was nothing but health challenges. And I was like, holy crap. He worked so hard to build that. And he had a great life building it within reason, you know, like obviously there was a lot of challenges too, but he built something of substance and, and changed a lot of people, helped people quite a bit. And yet was it for nothing? Do you think that's one of the world's biggest cons retirement? I don't know. Like, oh, do all this work, save all this money and then stop. I, well, I look at Ikigai, right? In Japan. I don't know if you guys have checked out like the blue zone, some of Dan Butner's research around, you know, these five populations of people that are living to be 100 or older uh, in Canada. If you see someone at 100 or above, they're usually in an assisted living home. They're usually waiting a lot, right? Like they're out there kicking ass and taking names, right? And there's very few. It's not a very big population of those people. And yet here's these five places around the world where they're completely outliers, but there's got to be some similarities. And, you know, he went and did some research where he found that there's these nine recurring themes and they're all free, accessible lifestyle decisions. These people aren't paying hundreds of dollars to go join certain gyms and to work with trainers and coaches. They just have a great, strong connection with community, with self. They got a deep sense of purpose for their life. They're active every day. They don't overeat. They eat whole foods. You know, when we say all this stuff, and it's like, whoa, that sounds pretty smart. That doesn't sound very hard to do. And yet, <laughs> you know, I look at my dad's decisions, you know, his choice around nutrition at times and alcohol consumption and stress management and mental health challenges. And it's like, oh man, 
why did he even retire? <laughs> Maybe he should have just kept working. Because in Japan, they got something called Ikigai. And, and I've been told that there's no Japanese term for retirement. Now, whether that's true or not, at least the way we understand it, because it's believed that when you're doing the things that you love, why would you ever stop? I've got an example with, with my grandfather. He, now, he passed away four years ago at 98. Oh, wow. At 95, he was ballroom dancing with all the 60-year-old, 65-year-old women. So he felt like a bit of a stud. So I'm 46, right? So the moment I remember him, maybe two or three, he was already retired. He retired at 55. He was retired his whole life. But what he did was he didn't overeat. He was always active. He lived on a house that was like on a steep block like this. Yeah, yeah. He bought an inclinator thing, like a a lift thing for my grandmother, but he'd put his tools on it and walk up and down the stairs. He goes, well, if I don't walk up the stairs, I'm not going to be fit. So he'd put his tools on it, press the button, then he'd walk up the stairs. So all day he was up and down the stairs. And what he loved the most was his garden always be out in his garden, planting flowers and trimming things. But he was always going out to be social and connect. And yeah, at, at 96, he looked like some 76-year-old, you know, and he interacted. It was that small, consistent, nothing extreme, no, but just small, consistent, good choices day to day, you know, and it's such an important thing. And, and I actually would like to just step back a little bit you know, from what we talked about a bit before, the transition, particularly for men between kind of the ages of 40 and 50, 55. There's a great book. I can't remember the author's name, but it's called The Death of the Ego and the Birth of the Soul. Mm. And in that book, it talks about how it's going basically moving from head to heart. It's going from the materialism, from the dollars, from the, yes. the stuff, from the, oh, I need to be known as this CEO or have this and have that, you know, and it's all external, it's all this external stuff but then moving towards an internal, I guess, both sense of peace. That's one of the hardest journeys that we can go on. And it's why there's such a spike in suicide rate in men mm. in between 40 to 50 is because of that journey, because they don't, people don't understand what it is. They don't understand what's happening. And there's not a lot of knowledge. And yeah. in a lot of ancient communities and stuff, they had transitional periods where they would actually take people through that journey because they knew that journey was coming. So they had these rites of passage at different points in people's lives to progress them from one stage to the next. But in, I suppose, you know, Western society, we don't have that. We don't have kids going through a rite of passage to now be classed as an adult. They don't go away for six months and hunt with the men and then come back and be seen as a warrior and a man. It's just this kind of path that's continuous. There's, we, we, I suppose psychologically we've lost some of that, those elements that actually make us human and that actually help us thrive as humans as well. But it is definitely something that we've, you know, that as I said, I wanted to, to cover that because it, it really is a good book to understand if people are going through a challenging period to understand what's going on. I read that a few years ago and it really highlighted the journey I'd been on and the journey I was going through and, and that of many friends as well around a similar age. I have not heard of that book, but I am totally going to download it after <laughs> this. So it's, uh, I appreciate the recommendation. It's more than just the outlier, right? The one person that sort of breaks the mold. I, I honestly feel it's much bigger than that, but these stories aren't often told and they're not role models. We're just not really aware that there's even an option to do that. I, you know, I, I think about my own experience, right? Like I left a career of 17 years as a partner of a company that I co-founded and I left at the wrong time. It wasn't a good time to exit of a company. I mean, is it ever really? I, I don't know. They're like a relationship. <laughs> it's like it's- Yeah. When it's yours. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I just wasn't feeling fulfilled. So here I am, burnout big time at this point. So I had given up alcohol. I started doing all this inner work, started questioning some of my associations or started looking for some new association. And so, you know, I'm changing a lot at this point. I changed even, I was so focused on professional development. Now I shifted into personal development, especially more inner work type stuff. Evolved, mate. Evolved. There we go. Not changed. Evolved. Thank you. I reckon is the is the word to move forward with. I like that. Okay, so I was starting to evolve, and as I was evolving, I started to realize that, gosh, this path that I'm on doesn't really feel like I'm supposed to be here anymore. You know, but that's kind of scary because I thought I had finally made it. Like this is what I've been working for, and I'm finally at that point where you know everything's just sort of clicking and. Yet I don't feel happy. I don't feel fulfilled. And I actually felt strained. I started not enjoying doing the work that I was doing. Like I really wasn't enjoying it at all. And and meanwhile, all the things I was doing on the side, as you know, people talk about their side hustles or side projects. And I was doing a lot of stuff, especially community work. 
really trying to service and build different types of communities, both online and offline, just ways to connect with people, create an impact, help. I often think about the hero's journey, you know, and that the full circle aspects of the hero's journey, you, know, you go through these changes and what do you want to do? You now want to help other people do those same changes, you know, you don't come back to where you started. And so here I was trying to do this and I wrote a personal manifesto. I had, I, I hit burnout and my partner, it was like, you know what, just take a few weeks and just take off and go look after you. And, and I thought, wow, this is great. I'll, I'll go visit my folks out in Toronto. So I left Vancouver on that flight, but a five hour flight, I just wrote. And I wrote my own personal manifesto. I felt like it was, have you guys seen the movie Jerry Maguire? Do you guys remember that movie? Yep, yep. Okay. It was my Jerry Maguire moment. Okay. I wrote out a personal manifesto of all these things that I wanted to accomplish before I hit 45. So like this would have been about 10 years, you know, it will be 10 years uh, next year. And so here I was writing all these pages and it ended up being, you know, once I finally typed it out, it was about 14 pages long, like a lot of goals, a lot of things I wanted to do, but also shifts that I wanted to start making in the fitness and wellness industries, things I wanted to see change. I brought it back and I shared it with my business partner, who at the time was the CEO. He was my first true business. And I'd even go as far as to say a life mentor because he was 20 years my senior. So I started working with him in my early 20s. And, you know, then we got into this company together and it was just, I, I learned a lot from him. But he didn't read it. He didn't read it. And I was like, whoa, whoa. Here's that first real strong male figure in my life. You know, I'd go as far as say he knew me way better than me. My dad knew me. It was like the only real father figure as well as role model that I spent a lot of time with. I, often there was weeks I'd spend more time with him than my family. And he didn't read it. I was gutted. Absolutely gutted. I was just like, whoa, I, I just... I was excited to share it. You know, like I was just fired up. I was like, this is how we can change the industry. This is all the stuff we're going to do. But here's also some things I want to do. And just completely dismissed. And that was when I realized that, you know what, this path I'm on, it's not meant for me anymore. But that was scary as hell because I was like, this is all I've known. It provides my family with a great income and safety. <laughs> you know, I think about Maslow, you know, that bottom of the pyramids looked after really well by this career option, you know, and, and here it was this big gaping hole. And, and so I shared that with my wife. We talked about it. She'd been dripping on me about leaving about, let's just go do something else. Let's go travel as a family. Let's be a full-time family. And I was like, lady you're crazy you know this is nuts there's no way like honestly like i was i was so i was a dick okay like, i was just like you're nuts no there's no way we're ever gonna do that but after that incident of not reading my manifesto not acknowledging some of my dreams and ambitions and vision of where i wanted to go i was like you know what i'm kind of open to these other ideas now maybe that's a good idea. And she just kept sending me little podcasts, you know, like these traveling families, these nomadic individuals that were just off living their life, but location independent. And I was like, okay, maybe we can do this. And then that maybe just kept building, gave notice, gave them almost, I guess it was close to 18 months notice. Cause I was in a, obviously quite an integral role within the company. So I wanted to make sure there was lots of lead time to replace me and, and put things in place. I wanted to leave on a good note and then left. And I had no idea where we we're going. I qu literally quit my career. A month later, my wife quit hers. A few months after that, we pulled the kids out of school, gave away all our stuff, packed up the SUV and just started traveling with no plan B, no idea of what we were going to do, but I at least started building some income online. I'd been doing some speaking. So I had some side hustles that were bringing them just enough that we could at least sustain that travel side of things for a little while. And that was what started this last six years has just been like crazy. Like the, the amount of stuff that I've packed in in the last six years is more than I'd done in the previous 15. Like really from a life experience and growth standpoint, or as you said, evolution standpoint, you know, but I all think it, it all came down to me having to get to that point and being like, what the hell do I want to do with my life? Like, really, what do I want? And I mean, how often are we even asked that question? Well, you don't want to unpack it. You don't want to know. Oh, hell no. It's like, I want to watch Netflix. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, if you ask me what I want on pizza tonight, I could tell you that. But ask me what I want for my life. Forget about it. You know, like, it's crazy. It's interesting that the synchronicities or similarities because um, yeah, I, I went and traveled for a year, packed everything up, sold most of the stuff three years ago and did that because there were things in my life that just weren't 
meshing. I, I stepped back out of a number of businesses. I, I, I changed a lot I of stuff. I got divorced. I thought that instead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it created the basis of change that I'm now experiencing now, you know, three years later, and it was an incredible experience to do that. I'd love to understand, though, you've clearly done a lot of the work. You've clearly stepped into that space where you're one of the few people who is actually living purpose, passion, you know, there's a strong self-leader showing up. I know where Sean's going with this, but Di said he'd come back to something and I, and I would like to go there. How do I get the 46-year-old man six-pack? Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's, That's the most important question. All right. Let me put it this way. You're going to fuel to thrive and you're going to move your body every day with purpose. Okay? Like, I, I know that sounds like so stupid simple. But when I say fuel to thrive, it's really just taking note of what you eat every day and just start to create a relationship with your food. Like literally start to take into account like this, just some regular self-talk, you know, 30, 60, 90 minutes after you've eaten and just check in with yourself to ask, how am I feeling? If you feel like you got to eat again or you feel like you need to take a nap, chances are what you ate earlier wasn't the right mix for you. Is that like metabolic matching your diet or? You see, this is the thing about nutrition. There's a lot of opinions out there. And I'm a big believer that majority of them have validity to it. But the problem is we're all so different. And yet we do have very similar aspects to just how we are because we're all human beings. And yes, we have certain anatomy and certain function. However, based on lifestyle choices and the way we've lived our lives, we're all very different. And this is where we start leaning into more like the, the conversation around epigenetics and specifically what lifestyle decisions and choices we've made up to the, our, this point in our lives. How does it influence certain, well, certain functions in our body, whether it be hormonal health, whether it be our metabolic health, uh, even right down to, to how we deal with the stresses in the world, both realized <laughs> like the ones that are actually there, like secondhand smoke, like pollution, uh, to right down to the ones that we subject ourselves to, right? Like with the types of foods that we decide to eat, some of the liquids that we decide to consume. And, and so if we start to have just a more awareness around how we fuel ourselves, it's the best place to start. That's where I like to begin because there's lots of different paths we can go down. I can say, hey, do this. You know, like I, I love following something called the zone diet. It has been repackaged many, many times. People sometimes refer to it as if it fits your macros. I don't know if you've heard that term, but we start talking about proteins, carbs, fats. It's all about trying to balance it in the right mix. And if you can balance in the right mix, you get your metabolism cranking all the time. You, you're, you're literally fueling yourself to thrive, not simply survive. But there's so many different ways, right? You can maybe look at the carnivore diet. You can look at the paleo diet. You can look at the Atkins diet. I mean, there's so many freaking diets. Diet just means the way you eat, you know? like <laughs> It's awesome though you sit there and, and provide the context to all of that. And I think one of the challenges when, when experts market diets, it's a bit like this car is fit for every purpose, no matter whether you're single or whether you've got a family of eight. This car is the best car. It's the shiniest car. And it might be. Because this is the thing, right? I think, and Sean, we've seen this, is, is context is so important for people. And, and most people run around with zero context in life, you know, just big ideas and, and dreams. And, but the complexity of pulling that all together around context and different aspects of your life, you, you kind of have a little bit of context there. You could talk about having some pillars or having a little bit of what are, what are like two or three things people can hang their hat on in order to start building some awareness around, around this journey? Thank you. Here's the first one. And this goes for anybody. There's a few things that I know to be absolutely true. I, 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 well, I've never had anybody challenge it to the point to tell me I'm wrong. So here it goes. <laughs> I've never, whether it be a client, a friend, just someone I've connected with on social and offered a, a couple of little tidbits, you know, of information that would be useful. I've never had anybody reach back to me and say, you know, Di, so um, I took your idea. I had this nice, big, luscious salad with some cedar plank salmon on it for lunch. I really regret doing that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, or, you know, I have a client and, and, you know, at the end of the day, I'm checking in with them. It's like, hey, how did the workout go today? And it's like, oh, you know, it went pretty well. Mm. I really regret doing it though, Di. You know, like there's certain things that we just never, ever, 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 ever regret. Do more of those. Okay. <laughs> you know, and so when you look at certain things, like when you eat certain types of food, there's a certain fulfillment you get from it. 
you know, and, and, and really just start to take stock on what foods those are. What are the foods that keep you going well, keep you focused, keep your energy in a great place? I think, Di, one of the, one of the things you said was about awareness, right? You know, I've seen my journey over the last, say, five years or so. Got back into running about 12 years ago. And then five years ago, I really started to, or started intermittent fasting. I started to be more aware of what I was eating. Still not as good as it could have been. But really, uh, I had a, and again, this is that thing about the, the time I started to count down, you know, at 46. Yes. I had a I had spinal surgery on my neck last oh. year. Oh. And it required me to do some rehab because I lost about 40%. From, from holding the weight of the world up. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, that was it. It was, Especially uh, <laughs> something goes wrong. So it meant that I lost about 40% muscle mass in wow. my right arm. And I'd never really done any upper body work or anything like that at all. I, I just ran. I love running. It's very meditative for me and, and I just really enjoy it. But so I had to start doing this, this rehab routine. And what I started to do was like, okay, well, I'm doing this every day. What if I add in some push-ups? What if I add in some weights? What if I, and so for the last sort of five months, I've been doing that. I've done it. I've missed one day out of 169 days. Nice. And I just do this 25 minute session pretty much every, about 25 minutes. Now, what I've noticed is that now I'm 46 now. I am the fittest, the strongest, and the slimmest that I've been since I was 23. What I noticed was it was all been based on awareness. Now, in the last month, I've become consciously aware more so, and I've actually opted now for a predominantly vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. Now, I never thought those words would ever come out of my mouth in a million years, like even three months ago, but I've actually just started doing it. It's like, oh, there's this whole other new world of things that I can eat and how I'm feeling, the awareness of how I'm feeling because yes. of that, it's my state has lifted. My mind is clearer. My ability to think, my ability to deal with stress has changed. And it's about being aware of the, our state. As you said, once you eat, you need to feel like you're going to fall asleep. Yes. And I haven't had something like a hot chocolate for like probably four or five months, maybe six months. I had one yesterday and I went, and I'm like, okay, I'm not having to do that again. Because straight away, I was just like, Bruh. I just felt my, my state drop. And it's like, okay, that's clearly not something that agrees with me. I very rarely have milk, but that's clearly not something that's agreeing with me. So again, I think that's the key too that I've found is you've got to be aware. Yes, you've got to have the data, the information about whether it's a particular style of diet, you know, intermittent fasting or an exercise routine, but you've got to be aware of how it's making you feel in the moment. As you said, it's not a goal. It's how, do I, how does it make me feel right now? Like an hour after I ate that, I feel really strong. I'm really clear. Or am I like brr, cathartic and really you know, flat and, and slow? You know, it's, it's such an important part of it. And then I think what happens is you get into a loop and if you're not careful, you go, oh, that's because I'm getting on. <laughs> it's escape. An excuse loop. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to, to point the finger at age. I, I know that. But then there's these outliers of people that just do amazing things. And, it, it, you know, I think about Rich Roll. I mean, it's pretty extreme what he did, obviously. But still, he, he was like mid to late 40s when he made that decision. He was, what was he, smoking like a pack a day and drinking and just, I mean, his story is pretty inspiring, right? And yet here he is and he's made this big change, massive transformation. And But he's not alone in that. There, there, there's some amazing stories out there of people that make these shifts and thrive. And, and I think it's finding those stories. You know, that's why I love what you guys do because you highlight a lot of these stories. You, you amass these amazing learnings and, and then just share them, pass down the story, right? It's how we all learn and get inspired to, to hopefully make some changes. And outside of the awareness piece, you know, I, I always like to encourage people. It's strength or resistance training, you know, from a physicality standpoint, muscle mass, you just don't want to lose it. Whatever you got, you want to fight to keep it as long as you can. Because if you just look at issues for people as they age, there's a really tight correlation between muscle mass, you know, metabolic health, as well as death. Okay. Like, and when the one's declining, we see the increase of death go up, right? Like it's, this is not new stuff. There, there's people far smarter than me and with a lot of alphabet soup after their name that figured all this stuff out. And the information's out there. It's just a matter of, do we tap into it? You know? And, and so if you can maintain your muscle mass, it is wonderful. You know, it, it maintain that, that strength, that base of strength. And if you don't have a good base of strength, no time like now to start building it back up, you know? Mm, and you can do it. You can do it tomorrow. You can you can build strength anytime yeah, any in your time. life, right? But again, recognize and, and this, yes, maybe age, this will come into play a little bit, is 
depending on the type of life we've lived to whatever age we're at, there's certain things that have been reinforced, certain patterns, especially movement patterns, which will probably need to be taken into account. And that's why I usually say, you know, go see a movement specialist, somebody that really understands how the human body moves, because you're going to have to make some subtle changes when you're first integrating new strength routines. And it's so true. I, I, my autoimmune disorder is called ankylosing spondylitis, yeah. and it's a, it's a skeletal problem. I really got into training. I dropped out of it about a year ago. I've got, this has been a great, my whole mind's like, yeah, stop making excuses to go tomorrow. But it was a good it was three years. I had a, a physiotherapist that decided to give away physiotherapy and become a trainer. And the first six months was movement. It wasn't mass. It wasn't weight. It was, it was postural. It was all the, all the small muscles, a lot of band movements, just getting the body to move how it should. And then when that was stable and moving right, then stack the weights on. And then it was like, man, I was benching like weights I'd never even imagined. And I'm like 43, more than I was benching as a kid. And I was like, and it was no pain. There was no you know, uncomfortableness there. So that I think that there's a real little gem. If you're 40 in your mid, don't go to a 20 year old trainer because they're going to break. Unless they've got, you know, a kinese background and they understand <laughs> just what it's like. As much as they understand it in theory, it's completely different in practicality, right? Like we can all say that being that we're all in our 40s. <laughs> like It's just so different. But I am fitter now than I was in my 20s. And, and I think that's something that you've both just echoed as well. And, and, but it's just, we've had to change how we, we do things, but the results I find actually, uh, we have a bit more patience when we age, right? Like, I mean, we, we, we just start, we don't take ourselves so seriously anymore. At least I don't. And, and at the end of the day, I, I look at how I trained before and how I train now, it's very different, but I still enjoy it at least how it makes me feel after the fact, I, I'll be honest, like it's, hey, on the top of my list every day, it's not to go work out. You know, it's not, it, but it, it's my general maintenance and I know it makes everything else that I do way better, you know? And, and so it's because of that connection, it's easy to do. So just to close out, I know you asked me for three things. So the first one, <laughs> Being aware, working on your mindfulness, you know, and especially just look at the choices that you're making from a nutrition standpoint, because you got to do that every day, all day, right? You're always eating. So, you know, get that piece figured out because you'll be doing that for the rest of your life anyway. So might as well figure out what works best for you now. The earlier you learn it, the better you'll be for it. Second to that, resistance training. But make sure you work with somebody that understands movement and understands how to analyze your body. Because, you know, like you were saying, Sean, I'm sure that there was some sort of shoulder impingement there or something, you know, that was limiting your ability to to move that arm and, and hence it atrophied because it wasn't being used. And these are things that can be corrected, but you need to work with somebody that knows what they're doing, you know. And then thirdly, it's all about mindset. If you're not feeling very motivated, get around people that are. I mean, it's the easiest way. And you just, you get motivated through osmosis, to be honest. Like, that's what I've experienced. Yeah, get a community of people that are interested in similar things, want similar things to you. Oh, man, because on those days where, trust me, it's a lot easier to stay in bed than it is to get up and go for a run. It's nice knowing that, oh, I know my buddy who's living across town. We may not be running together, but I know he's going to get up. He's going to be texting me in five minutes and say, hey, how's the run going? You know, like, it's just, it's like, I'm like, you're a dick, but I'm going to be there, you know, <laughs> but it's amazing what happens. Right. And just to throw a stat out there and not to. Oh, I love stats. Right, man. I, I, I love stats. I throw them out. Okay. Because we've been talking about this vulnerability piece and just as, as us, as men who have been either finding ourselves in the shift or experiencing the result of making the shift. There's a stat that came out from a, a research paper that was done in partnership with Movember Project. And uh, this was done out of the UK. And so they surveyed all these men, uh, 20 and above. And what they found was they, they asked some basic questions. And the question that really jumped out at me out of the survey that they asked was, how many men, if any, would they be willing to share serious conversations around topics like money, health, relationships? Like literally, how many other men? Would they be willing to have those conversations with? But they were men that were outside of your home. So no family, no, no one that you live with. Like it's outside of your sort of inner circle. How many did you talk to? 51% said two or fewer men to talk to and connect on this. But one in eight said zero, none. And, and this is especially as they got to 35 and above. Like, that's amazing. You know, in their 20s, the numbers were a little bit higher. But as we got to 35 to 45 to above, 
that number was going down and down and down. We just don't have these communities. We don't have these connections. We don't have these serious people that we feel that we can be vulnerable with and share some of the stresses that we're working through. You know, and, and I think that is a challenge that we're all either dealing with right now or we're going to unless we're aware of it and we do something to actually combat it. Do you know what I mean? Like actually find that community, find that, that inner circle or develop deeper friendships with people that you can have for the rest of your life. Not nice, nice product drop there, by the way. Yeah, I like that. Find your inner circle. Uh, yeah, because my group's called the inner circles. So that was really good. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. I saw that online. Yes, there you go. So your inner circle there. Join Sean's inner circle and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sean's ringing the guests before we come on the show. <laughs> Just before I wrap that up, though, you know, it's a great point, Di, that you say. I mean, it, you know, when they do the, uh, when they've, I can't remember, there's a study done and, you know, or a survey done of people as they reach the end of their lives and, and the things that people regretted, the number one thing was, you know, not spending enough time with people they cared about. And that's so, so important. So that was an Australian, right? Bronnie Ware, I think. Bronnie Ware, the five regrets of the dying. My God, that was when my dad was going through sort of that end of life period. I'm very fortunate. You know, like I think about the choices that we've made. Had I not left my career a few years prior to that, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to be with my family, be around my dad during those last six months. It's weird how sometimes these decisions, big, scary decisions, actually open up some pretty amazing doors for us. And we just don't even realize it in the moment, right? When I discovered her, everything shifted. And so I, I love that you brought that up because I think, you know, in juxtaposition to, to what I was talking about, you know, the people that live to be 100 that are thriving in these blue zones. Meanwhile, you have people not even making it to their 70s, nothing filled with regret at that end of life. It's like, whoa, these are two very different ends, different sides of the coin here. It's like, I know what side I want to be on. Awesome. Awesome. So we could talk all day, but yeah, we got, we got to get out, kicked out of the studio. But uh, the last question I want to ask is, if, knowing what you know now, if you were to take a piece of advice that you know, what piece of advice would you share with that younger version of yourself who was struggling, who was challenged, you know, who was overweight, who didn't know what was in store, what was coming? You're enough right now. And you're worth the change. I often think about that inner child, that, that little boy that I was and how bad he was hurting. And I used to question just my value, you know, all the time, all the time. And I, I would like to, him to know that, man, you're worth it. You're worth everything. And stop discounting yourself. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the biggest one I would like to put out there for everybody. You're definitely also speaking to the, you're speaking to the 14-year-old version of me too. So I uh, appreciate that. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Thank you, Di. I really, really appreciate your time today and it's been an incredible conversation. Thank you for sharing your story openly, vulnerably, you know, for coming out the other side of, of the ego and, and moving towards the, the soul and the heart-centered you know, approach. It's really, really refreshing. That was an awesome journey. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Christian. Or boo. I guess we'll go boo, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, boo. And it's my call. When I was in the Air Force, my call sign, it just stuck ever since. So cool. Well, I'm sure we'll cross paths again, Die. We're going to have all Die's links in the, uh, the podcast uh, after the show. For me right now, Die, what's resonating is context. If, you, if you're looking for that context and you need to draw the dots and make it make sense for you, man, reach out to Die. I think it's going to be evolutionary and look him up on uh, on ted as well ted talk looks it was, was really really powerful talk. so thank you again die thank you i appreciate that guys thanks man take care this has been the few podcast with boo and sean if you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us please share it with your friends if you're posting this on social media use the hashtag the few so we can see who's listening the few podcast is recorded at momentum media in sydney australia to listen to more episodes visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode dream big keep pushing and one day you can become one 
of the few. We'll see you next week.